0: One journalist who works for an alt-weekly, the Santa Fe reporter, Aaron Contu, is facing 70 years for moving along with a group of people that he was covering and being charged with the alleged crimes of the people he's covering. That is tremendously dangerous for journalism. So I think my takeaway is that we're
1: on shakier ground than ever and need to be more vigilant. I've said it before on this podcast, journalists are optimists. When they see a problem, they want to fix it. The way they fix it is by doing good journalism. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. In studio today with me is a returning guest, Baynard Woods. You may remember him. uh, We spoke to him a little over a year ago. He's a writer-editor with the uh, Baltimore City Paper. But... He's in studio talking about this great podcast that he's working on, "Democracy in Crisis." Welcome back, uh, Baynard. Glad to have you. Oh yeah, it's great to be here. Well, cool. So first of all, "Democracy in Crisis," as as the name might uh, suggest, is is uh, is a pretty aggressive uh, outlook on uh, for a journalistic venture. What what's the uh, what was the inspiration for it?
0: I mean, after the election, I think everyone felt a certain sense of that, 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 exactly that, the democracy was in crisis. And especially among the, and papers, the the alternative weeklies, there was a sense that we, I mean, when I, in Baltimore, my motto had been militantly Baltimorean. That was what we were really focusing on for the last several years. But there was a sense among a number of the editors on the listserv that what are we going to, how are we going to cover this? Our readers are going to want to have some way. And so I thought if I can get a little bit of of money from a lot of papers that I could sort of full-time cover Washington and what is happening in national politics right now. And so part of the name came from just signaling in print that it was about D.C. Um, and so the democracy in crisis, you make the D big and the C big. Uh, but 20 papers signed up almost immediately to get the column. And so then we thought, well, we want to get a, a podcast and kind of keep pushing is be able to provide as much value to those papers as possible. Things that they would want to have, but wouldn't necessarily be able to do. And I really wanted it to be more like a pool reporter than a column. Uh, I I wanted it to be reported rather than just desk bound bloviating.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's it, it's a column that uh, that appears every day. No, uh, no. Or, so that, or so not every every week. Well, it
0: appears sometimes every day. There will be web stuff. Um, and then, yeah, it's once a week in the, the weekly papers, which, which poses real problems for a reported thing in this super fast news cycle that, what do you write about, you know, I went to the Comey hearing, say, what do you write about that that's still going to be good in two weeks? Because you have the lead time, and then it's on the shelf for a week in whatever market it's in.
1: Okay, so Democracy in Crisis, uh, your co-host is Mark Steiner of the Center for Emerging Media. He's been doing uh, radio for a while. Tackling these type of issues that are of particular interest to the alternative press.
0: Yeah, I mean he's a fascinating guy because he actually started in the underground press okay. back in the '60s that that preceded alt weeklies, and he started a sort of news service of independent underground papers around the country or or was one of the people that was starting a news service so they could share content and stuff and a couple decades ago he got into radio and has been doing really hard-hitting progressive radio since and it's been really it's been great to be able to work with him and the center for emerging media doing this
1: okay so what is what's been your takeaway at, at this point you've been doing it for well geez how many episodes is it Uh, We've just about to put out our 24th episode,
0: which is a a really, it was also, so we've been airing the the podcast also on Mark's terrestrial radio show out of WEAA in Baltimore. And so our show that it's about to come out was just heartbreaking. We recorded yesterday and his show goes off the air this week. My home paper, City Paper, was just announced that it was going. And so, I mean, it, it... The takeaway really is that the crisis is deeper than we thought. Everyone is obsessed with um, these sort of political attacks on the press from the White House, which are legit, very legitimate. And we're under the same and even greater economic attacks that that we've been under for, you know, at least since 2008 and, and going back, you know, a decade before that. And then there are all of these other I've been really covering the thing I've been covering probably hardest the first column and podcast was about inauguration day and the 215 defendants who are being charged for protesting that day over a couple of windows being broken by specific individuals and charging people in mass and one journalist who works for an alt weekly the Santa Fe reporter Aaron Cantu is facing 70 years for moving along with a group of people that he was covering and being charged with the alleged crimes of the people he's covering. That is tremendously dangerous for journalism. So I think my takeaway is that we're on shakier ground than ever and need to be more vigilant than ever.
1: Yeah. Uh, about that particular case, you just did a sort of a follow-up episode a, a week or so ago. is pretty fascinating. It's a, a journalist out, you know, covering the protests to uh, the inauguration, Um, he was not as near as we can tell. He was not actually involved in the, the, um, the actual protest. He was actually covering it, progressing with the the people down the street and was sort of like shepherded everybody. They grabbed them all together. They arrested them all together. And just because he was with the group they're charging him in the same, the same way. Could you explain how the police is able to do that?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And it's not only that he was with the group, but that he happened to be wearing black and so the group that was moving was was a black block as the terminology has it and so the idea is by wearing all black covering your face and moving in mass that you sort of make a physical manifestation of the anarchist flag and you sort of represent collectiveness You know, and in fact, it's exactly what the police that day were doing as well, wearing identical clothes, having stuff over their face. And there was very good reason for people to have things over their face. I got tear gassed that day. I was almost arrested that day myself. They ran up to me with a a police officer holding her stick, uh, horizontal with both hands to the side, running at my neck. And I held up my press pass and said, press. And she went around and knocked someone else down. And so, but the idea is that, if you're moving, if there's an idea of the black block, and their idea of it is that it allows people to then break windows, move out of the group, break a window and move back into the group and not be identified. So if you're moving with them, you're part of a conspiracy and you're therefore responsible Um, And because the protest was called Disrupt J20, they say it's also a conspiracy. If you were anywhere near them, you knew they
1: were conspiring to disrupt things and you were part of any disruption that happened. So even just going to cover it. Yeah. you, You could be sort of. And so that's obviously a chilling effect on members of the press who might be aware of some protests coming out, maybe not choosing not to go cover it or getting in in close enough to actually report what's going on because they're they're afraid for for their own safety for for the fact that they may actually be charged with something
0: exactly right i mean the last time i was here talking with you was the about the baltimore uprising and i mean i moved with all of the groups that were doing everything at that point and you know also with the the black Bloc that day and yeah if reporters can't move if reporters are charged with the crimes of people that they are covering, then every every cops and court beat reporter, every political reporter and stuff is it it's crazy that you can't if you see something it's your job to be close to it.
1: That's what our job is you know, you have a lot of enthusiasm for for this type of reporting for going out not, not just protesting protests but but actual um, you know the progressive movement. You're coming from uh, the alternative press which has a has a particular point of view. And you know a lot of newsrooms aren't like that, but many are and, and many journalists are thinking how they how they should approach covering this type of uh, you know protest this this you know becoming part of this type of coverage. What advice would you give to them?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. One is know where you... I think we all are at a point where we have to know where we stand before we go to cover anything, you know, before going to a White House press briefing, before going to a press conference, before... um, I think the alternative press is in a better shape than a lot of people for dealing with, with the Trump administration right now because we always assumed the guy behind the podium was a liar. Not just now. We always you know, we always valued transparency more than false equivalences or false balance. We always tried to be as honest as possible with our readers. And so I I think deciding some of those things first so that if things get crazy, you know where you are. And, And I mean, for me, I decided early on that we all have to be at, reporters are activists when it comes to the First Amendment. That's the thing that it's our job to defend, and the thing that protects us. And so, but like, where you draw those lines is sort of important to decide. Um, when are you ready to walk out of a press briefing because there's some kind of lie or something? When are you ready to be drugged out of it?
1: What are you willing to do to get a story? Yeah, and what are you going to do to to fight for your right as a servant of the First Amendment? That, I mean, part of your job is out, out there is to help protect democracy by exercising your rights and informing your audience of things that you see and 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 calling out, you know, liars, but also calling out um, when people try to take away your ability to do your job and to inform the public. The last time we uh, we spoke, when you know this was after the uh, the Baltimore uprisings, you know, you were talking about lots of different things that you're doing, but now. Were you sort of changing the direction of what you're doing in, from the election or, or were you starting to sort of do this type of reporting more actively before the election?
0: It's, yeah, I mean, I definitely changed focus to decide to start covering national politics after the election. And and partly because there was, I felt like there was a need there, that it was something that papers might want. Not only that papers might want, but that our alt-weekly voice could really contribute to the conversation. And not just, I mean, every a lot of the editors will write their opinion, their column every week and, and rail against the things that they're but I thought showing a little bit of internal workings or the mechanisms or some scenes. I mean, the way that we write stories, try to write stories using character and scene and humor, but have them be reported in fact and make what, you know, Tanahassi Coates calls a uh argument through reported narrative trying to do that was something that I thought really needed to be done for our readers and our audience so it it didn't change the way that I was reporting but it changed my beat I guess I and and part of that's economic as well it's increasingly difficult to make a living covering baltimore and there were ways to be able to cover here i mean it's it's a weird way to make a living getting Fifty little fifty dollars checks from a bunch of different alt weeklies in the mail isn't isn't a super stable living either. But it's I also feel like one reason that we're so necessary and something that that's been bothering me a lot, and one of the things that pushed me in this direction is we're right now all having to champion CNN and defend CNN or defend. Like they can't do that themselves. Right. And they're garbage. I mean, <laughs> the reality is, when they came to Baltimore, they got it all wrong. And everyone who was there knew that they got it wrong. And they were turning dust. And so now, because the president won't call on Jim Acosta, we're in an uproar, an outroar. And None of those people in the White House press briefing are asking about, for instance, Aaron Contu that we were just talking about, about these real charges against journalists. And so I'm happy to defend the First Amendment when it applies to CNN, just as I am with anyone else. But I wish they would pay that back a little bit. And I also still think that we can't not criticize them. I think a lot of the sort of left press. Failed during the Obama administration by, because he was so much being attacked by the right wing, being a little bit reluctant to attack it. And now that CNN is under assault by the alt-right and the president, it's a little bit more reluctant to say, hey, that's a garbage. Um, but on the day of the inauguration, their coverage of the, the protests that we were just talking about was terrible. Yeah, And I mean, they, they aren't necessarily doing the job that needs to be done either.
1: Yeah, I didn't didn't feel just looking at the mainstream press had a really great sense of they covered the inauguration how they always cover inaugurations, but I didn't have a real good sense of what was actually going on in the in the protests around it. You know, maybe I felt a little bit better about the women's march the day after. I you know the coverage of that. I think that was. But but I agree with you. I, I think let's talk more about a democracy in crisis, the podcast. What I really like about it and want and I encourage people to listen to it of all political bents, of all different types of newsrooms, is because you guys are covering a lot of stories that people don't normally cover. And the fact that you're in Washington with using a an alternative press editorial eye and applying it to sort of this beat, I think, is a really powerful thing. Yes, the the mainstream press is is whining a little bit because they're not you know, things aren't as easy for them, that they're being asked to do things that they don't normally do. But the fact is, they're not, they're maybe not covering the stories that they should be. And this idea, you, you mentioned false equivalency before this, you know, the way they cover the, you know, the presidency, the way that the way they they're, they're covering, you know, all these stories that are coming out of the White House is, you know, I, again, I don't feel like I have a real sense of what's going on that there's this sort of confined narrative i don't know it's almost like it's a wrestling match that the the players have sort of changed but it's still the same kind of arguments as I, I don't feel that we're getting as much of the real truth and the, and the strata that w- that we are getting, and so that again, if you listen to democracy in crisis, you, you hear a lot of different types of stories. It's a progressive voice, and, and I know that we've done podcasts before where we've talked about advocacy journalism, and we've gotten criticism of the fact, well, advocacy is not journalis- journalism. Well, I you know I think there's a, a place for journalism of a point of view, of view, and if people understand where you're coming from, and they can place you wherever they need to place you in their narrative of understanding but the fact is you look and you report it on things that other people aren't and that's of huge value. It's stuff that's outside the mainstream. So where are you getting your stories from? Is it just, I'm keeping my eyes open? I
0: feel like with uh, Alt weeklies, especially, this is when I was trying to pitch the the column and then the podcast, that this is the fight that we were made for. I mean, not only did like the neo Nazis take our our damn prefix and start calling themselves alt right. We got Trump because of the failure of the mainstream media. Yes. We got Trump because of the way that CNN covered the horse race and not the issues. We got this is how we ended up here, and so we needed something different. But there's something different, even the pundits who were all complaining about journalism after the election, there's something different was already right there, and it was us. You know, they say, oh, there aren't any reporters outside of Washington and, and New York or whatever. Well, you know, alts are all over. I, I, my column goes out to alts in every one of the real American states, you know. And and so, like, that Ron Rosenbaum story, which is an amazing story, he, he has a book called Explaining Hitler— and it's about all the people over the decades who have tried to explain the evil of Hitler, but it starts with this chapter called The First Explainers, and it was about the Munich Post, and this hugely courageous writers there who really had an alt-weekly-like voice in the 20s in Munich, and covered Hitler from before the first Beer Hall Puts all the way until they were all murdered after he took power, and they did it with humor, they did it with satire, And they did it with deep investigative journalism. And they were the models of starting democracy in crisis in the first place. So I immediately, when we started the podcast, I think that was the second one, I immediately was like, you, I guess, and this, like, oh, I get a chance to talk to writers that I like. And so I I tried to get in touch with Rosenbaum, and we were, like, followed each other on Twitter or whatever. So I wrote him a message, and he was willing to do it. And as it happened, he revisited that story for the L.A. Review of Books that week, uh, the same week that it came out. Didn't even tell me that that it was. And so I looked really prescient and like it was. But it had been something that I read. It happens that I got into journalism through I did a Ph.D. in ancient philosophy. And my dissertation was about Plato's view of the tyrannical psychology, how someone becomes a tyrant. And so I feel like I'd been training my whole life to cover tyranny. I then realized that the only way to really live like Socrates is to be a reporter and go out in the streets and ask people who don't want to be asked questions, questions. And so I felt like that it just kind of all came together. So other ones that like uh, Lawrence Weschler was a guest on and he'd been someone I'd been reading for a really long time and wanted to have on. And so it's just a great opportunity to be like, oh, I love this writer and they must have interesting things to say about this and try to get them to come and talk with us.
1: That's actually one of the nice things about doing a podcast is you actually do get the opportunity to, to talk to people that you admire. And they turn out to be really smart and, and interesting people like you, sir. Fake news. What have you just thought about this thing? Because here's what I've been you know sit, standing where I do with this podcast, getting people and sort of seeing how the things have progressed after the election. I think fake news is a bad thing. But then, on the other hand, I feel that that's a very convenient thing to point to, especially for journalists. Oh, it's just, it's fake news. It's the way things are, are being. I think there really is fake news. I think there are people who are trying to influence the way people think. But I, I think there are lots of other lessons that we're kind of sweeping under the rug. Some one of which is that you mentioned the there were large sections of the country that we just did not report on. We did not, you know, cover those those rallies the way that we should have because we were all that the mainstream press was doing was was the the horse race. That was the way they were programmed to cover elections. And then on top of that, it was, you know, covering the, you know, what did what did Trump say today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, it's a really fascinating, that whole
0: concept and, and the way it came to be. And I mean, one thing, the, a lot of the criticism of the press was just nonsense that they got it wrong about who was going to win. Like, no reporter's job is to predict the future. Pundits, they're wrong all the time. And they're not... Reporters, So there's a weird, like, concept bleed there between anyone who goes on the television and talks about politics is somehow a reporter. And, and so, like, yeah, pundits got it wrong, predictors got it wrong, but that's the fundamental fact of human nature is we can't predict the future. So blaming people for that seems weird. But remember the way fake news started was we started talking about the legitimate fake news that was being produced by kids in Belarus and by Russians and by all kinds of people that were not real stories that were being passed around widely in, you know, Hillary had a stroke and all of this stuff that was being widely shared. And the Trump administration took that and things moved so quickly, we hardly even remember that that's where it started. And now it's being used of any story they don't like about You know, major news networks. And so one of the things that and and newspapers and everything else, one of the things that really terrifies me about that is I fear that that's where Russia, the whole conversation about Russia will go, that we're going to continue talking about Russia hacking the election until we have another election that they may lose. And then the same way they turn fake news around, they'll be in a position to say, Russia hacked the election. The election's no good. And we no longer have an election this administration is bumbling in like so many deep and profound ways, but they are and remain master manipulators and master rubber and glue, uh, bounce off me and stick to you kind of stuff that they're able to turn things around and use them in in pretty masterful ways rhetorically. And so I think that, the whole saga of the phrase fake news should
1: give us a lot of pause about a lot of things. Okay, so how do we how do we combat that? How do we as journalists deal with that then? What should we be doing, I guess? I mean, one huge thing not to do,
0: New York Times, is don't fire your goddamn copy editors and fact checkers. Like we do get stuff wrong sometimes, everyone does and makes honest mistakes. But the more eyeballs we have on things, the fewer mistakes we are going to make. And when someone does make a mistake, it gives them fuel to, for this fake news thing. I also think we need to abandon the false idea of objectivity or really deeply examine what we mean by that. I think we hold it as a belief rather than something that we even know what we're talking about most of the time. And so to be a reporter and pretend that you don't have an opinion isn't a very useful thing for anyone to pretend you're not a human being and to pretend that, you know, when the New York times says like says to a reporter, what do you mean to a reporter? Are there three people in the room or two? And so I feel like one of the things we can do is have an honest discussion about the difference between transparency, honesty, and objectivity. And I, I would rather be on the side of you can know exactly where I'm coming from. And my old column that I used to write, Conflicts of Interest in Baltimore, one of the main things I did was I laid out every horrible thing about myself in the midst of doing so about the mayor and everyone else. You know, if I got too drunk, it it had to become part of the story so that I could look like an ass as well. And most of the time, reporters aren't willing to look like an ass. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that we're human and that we're not divine and that we're people who are doing our best to be out in the scrum and to know what's happening and here's our perspective. I'm I'm deeply looking for right-wing writers that do the same thing, that would write long-form, informed, intelligent, narrative pieces that would come from a right-wing perspective. I would love to find that. And yet their form of the day seems to be the meme And they don't seem to be very interested in. And I I think that's the other thing that we need to do is character destroys stereotype. If, If you write a big, long profile about a complicated coal miner, that doesn't get people raising hell and demanding to save coal and jobs and stuff. But it shows what life is like there. And that's what we need more of rather than the kinds of pieces that create ideology. One of the things we're trying to do is burst through ideology. So like when you said the podcast comes from a progressive point of view, I would agree with that in the sense of that I'm generally left, but I try to, I find the Democratic Party reprehensible also. And one paper quit carrying the the column for that reason. And I also find that much of of even non- Democratic Party progressive politics is also nonsense. And so I am not partisan in any way at all. And I think a lot of people have a difficult time seeing nonpartisan as they want it to be just middle of the road milquetoast so that everyone can be. But there's a different version of that where you can be something that by being honest to everyone, they don't have to agree with you, but they, they get a perspective and they know where you're coming from.
1: Yeah, the the idea again, going back to false equivalency, that that if you present both sides, you've done your due diligence, your story's okay. But, you know, you said it, I think every uh, every reporter in some way writes from a particular perspective what whatever story they've chosen, whatever story their editors assign them, they're gonna t- bring their own personal tools to it, their own personal experiences it's gonna be gone through that it's gonna be going through that filter. And I think you know a lot of newspapers are are pretty good about like you know weeding out all of the obvious things that would would lend people to sort of suspect that a person is a particular one way or the other but this idea that presenting two sides is, is sufficient without you know actually presenting context i know we've all we've all had that that opportunity to go out and cover the story, really know the story, and realize that there's no, there are no two sides. There are multiple sides. There, are, there are lots of different things. And so, in the end, it, it becomes what is the truth of the story, and that's the thing that you aim to tell. And maybe that doesn't support whatever your political event is. Right. And we
0: often don't hear the more interesting ideas because of this idea that, I mean, it is inherently we only cover the powerful. Because it, like t- taking health care, for instance, when the first Republican House healthcare bill fell through, I was in the covering the House at all during those weeks. And so the day that it died, they had a press conference down there and there's Paul Ryan, who was certainly worse. But then there was Pelosi and her sort of crew of of mainstream Democrats. And I asked the question about, well, the Progressive Caucus was the day before had a little press conference that no one was at arguing for single payer. And so when I asked Pelosi about that, they just kind of laughed it off as, oh, we'll never um but I mean Trump himself had supported a, a single payer at one point. Why wouldn't the Democrats at that moment of and now they failed again to do this three times at the moment where the Republicans aren't offering any ideas, why don't you start pushing really strong with, like, a single-payer idea, but instead they think, oh, well, that idea is too marginal, so we're just going to ignore it and make sure it remains marginal. And this is what we see in the daily papers in cities like Baltimore where they are institutions, and so, and partly for legal reasons and other things, they favor other institutions. So they're going to favor a police report over what the person who was arrested said, because a police report is, a uh, although, you know, body cam footage came out yesterday showing a police officer planning drugs, and the guy's been in jail since January on this, and people aren't listening to... So we silence those who are already silenced by our own institutional biases in journalism, and that's one of the things I try to sort of correct is find the sides that aren't being spoken about as much because they're considered unrealistic or uh, implausible and then we, re- we just keep the status quo as it is because oh only Pelosi and Paul Ryan are the only people that have any ideas there that they're both bankrupt on ideas.
1: yeah I, I not heard... equal
0: though Ryan's way worse to be clear
1: <laughs> in, in the balance, uh, the balance is tipping particularly one particular way. So going forward, what do you, what are you hoping to do in the next few months? It's things move so fast and change so fast that it's hard to,
0: it's been really hard to plan and figure out what, how to move forward in terms of actual things that we're covering. One thing we are doing is we have a lot of that body cam footage from the protests and we're analyzing that, the Inauguration Day protests, we're analyzing that and putting it out. And I'm going to keep covering that story to partly. Change the balance of power, because right now the state or the government controls all of the the evidence and the information. So that's one ongoing project. We've been doing a number of long form features that we've provided also to on tax day uh, a tax resist as feature on tax resistors that a bunch of alt who the ones who subscribe also could get for free. I have a, a FOIA partner in this Mary Finn in California, and she's filed three hundred FOIA requests since January. So we're still really pushing on that. We're trying to sue the state of Alabama because back in November we filed a bunch of requests on Luther Strange, who was the state attorney general at the time, has since been appointed to Jeff Sessions' seat in Congress. And we asked for all of the communication between him and Sessions. And they've been refusing to give it so and not even acknowledging our request. So we're trying to get some lawsuits going, really get our FOIA arm Going a little bit stronger. And then Mark and I are working, Mark Steiner, the the podcast co-host, we're working together to rethink the podcast a little bit. As as his show goes off the air, this week we're going to take a two-week break and revamp a little bit, try to use a little bit more of the audio I get While doing the reporting for print, which right now I've been using, you know, cruddy little Olympus recorders in my pocket or whatever and using better recorders to get better audio that we can have not only conversations, but present scenes a little bit more often. And we're trying to use that to work with to create some kind of model also to fund nonprofit journalism in Baltimore. So we're our partnership, which was largely the podcast is growing a little bit. So I think it'll be interesting the podcast will come back and be a little bit better. I mean, I don't know what you think about you talk to a lot of people about this and listen to a lot of my idea of podcasts right now is that they either need to be zines or HBO um, or something. They need to either be really well done or need to be kind of loose and off the cuff and just a conversation. And we're not, but we'd at least like to have more, a little bit more
1: segments or something to yeah, a little more structure maybe. Yeah. Well, one of the things I like about yours is, besides the, what you're talking about, because you you're both you're both smart, you're talking about really interesting subjects. Is there's a, a degree of grit to it that you don't hear on a lot of podcasts? And I don't mean that in a like a bad audio way. I mean just in, you know, I get the impression that you're out there on the street covering these things. The story you told about covering the congressional, not the congressional, the conservative. Um, um, gathering down in... oh yeah, in, uh, oh, yes. Yes. CPAC, CPAC, uh, which I believe you said that you were, uh, you were um stoned. stoned. yes, when you did that. Uh, well, you know,
0: it's it's legal <laughs> in DC, so I, I consumed it in DC before going across the river to where the CPAC was in Maryland. But in, I mean, in a way, that's gimmicky, like the Vice thing right. of like, oh, we did this on acid. But the real, <laughs> the real reason was as a white guy going to this really horrendous conference i mean this is a place where like false balance like oh these you know this was horrendous these were people filled with hatred for vast swaths of america who were coming together to talk about that hatred in a place i could somewhat pass as you know
1: yeah that was a white guy at least <laughs> and so i wanted to feel if you know the- white r- skin is going to get you so far in some rooms i'm just saying I wanted you being
0: a reporter was an obvious like sign of hatred there too, but I wanted to feel that horror to its fullest extent, and so the paranoia that you can get from being high seemed one way to do that.
1: Very gonzo of you, Baynard. Thanks for coming in. It's always a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'll keep an eye on what's going on with the podcast and, and make sure our, our readers uh, or our listeners uh, are apprised of it. Please check it out. It's a great podcast. You're doing a, some amazing stuff, and, and I'm glad to see that you you came down from Baltimore to to try to to help us here down in DC. Well, thanks a million, and and uh, yeah, I.
0: I hope that we can get our listeners, such as they are, to uh, listen here as well. Because I think talking about journalism, whereas the last time we were on, maybe was of much more interest only to us within that world. (laughs) But now I think it's a a major topic for everyone. What are we doing? And so you, this service that you're doing for everyone by doing this podcast is really, uh, you know, has been fascinating inside baseball. Um, And I hope other people also have been interested. But, like, I think now the whole world
1: is needs to hear this even more. The direction has changed slightly, and this is me being inside baseball to the listeners. The direction has changed slightly in order for us to because I'm trying to examine more the issue of transparency, of media literacy, of you know what we can do to make what we're, our processes more obvious to people so that they can see what we're doing and why we're doing it. This idea that we're somehow masterminds behind the scenes trying to you know do whatever that were somehow against the government when it actually in fact were actually for the people of the of the United States whether that's whether the people are lined up with the government or not you know getting good information out there to people is is what's the most important thing and, and recognizing people out there who were doing it like you Yes, you, you're coming from an alt perspective, and there will be people who criticize you and say, oh, he's just, you know, some of these pr- progressive nut jobs. He's, you know, everything he's writing is is all tainted. But, you know, you're out there reporting. You're out there talking to people, and there's value in that and bringing that to the discussion. And, and, and writing the stuff from your perspective is valuable to this conversation. I think we've got – we need more voices like that. I'm not necessarily just progressive. I think that the fact that you brought up point that you'd like to see somebody writing long for conservative is conservative writing. I mean, that's what we need. We need people who are not just writing memes, we need people who are actually creating thoughtful pieces on all sides and all types of conversations. The idea that there's only right and left, there are so many different conversations, there's so many different stories that aren't being covered. We've got all this attention on the White House and, and the next thing Trump says, what things aren't being written about? What what people who should be, whose stories should be out there are we not covering? That's the stuff that's concerning.
0: Yeah, and I mean, one more little point on that. The, the people who write for alts and stuff are... The idea that, that we would be elite, you know, that's sort of yeah. been pushed out there too. The Chicago Reader, which has been trying to have their union recognized... For the last couple of years now, they started in order to, to get that recognized, they started publicizing their salary. And one of their staff writers who's been in the industry for 15 years is making $35,000 to live in Chicago. And so like a little bit of the sympathy that goes up for all of these other industries and who are real Americans who are scrapping by. On, I mean, the, it doesn't get much more scrapping by than than an all weekly reporter.
1: No, poor us. <laughs> thanks for coming in.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Next time on It's All Journalism.
0: But also what I love about Twitter is the connections. We make these connections on there that are so different than what we could on other social platforms. Like if I wanted to reach out to somebody who's big, who's like a big deal, I have the best chance of getting that connection on Twitter. They're more inclined to chat.
1: Join us next week when Twitter marketing specialist Madeline Sklar returns to the podcast to tell us about how you can Twitter smarter. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicole Grisco. Amber Healy provided the web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and nerdy guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time for you to start your podcast? While you're on our website, leave a comment or send us an email at editor at itsalljournalism.com. We're always looking for new guests and topics for the podcast. We also like getting feedback on how we can make the podcast a better experience for you. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at alljournalism and look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called
0: Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at wtop.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a
1: huge harm to this country.
0: North Korea's secret missile.
1: That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA.
0: The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast
1: One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.